women rabbis talking to other women rabbis about being women rabbis. We've been away for a bit and so we're so glad to be back. I'm Rabbi Emma Gottlieb and I'm here with Rabbi Marcy Bellows. And we are ready to jump right in. So Marcy, what are you thinking about this week? Tell us your thoughts. Well, Emma, you know, I used to have such a good poker face I was the utmost professional with amazing posture, and it was nearly impossible to read what was going on behind my calm facade. This approach to life had served me seemingly well throughout my high school years, into college, and what I had planned on becoming in my career in psychology. It wasn't that my childhood wasn't complicated or emotional or filled with painful complexities. It was just that I never let them show. I was a vessel for others' pain, for others' stories, for others' experiences. And that's how I liked it. In fact, that's what I thought rabbis were supposed to be. It seemed that that was the model I saw. In previous generations of rabbis, they were unreadable enigmas, and you never really knew what was going on inside of them, as if that was irrelevant. For me, I didn't really know how to share my own experiences, and as the eldest child in my family, I was pretty much primed for this role from birth, which was perfectly suited, of course, for what I thought a rabbi was supposed to be. I was a mother figure long before I was actually a mother. Nevertheless, in my rabbinate, this poker face, this unidirectional sharing from congregant to me, has begun to fail over the past years. It hasn't been authentic. It hasn't allowed for true connections with my congregants as fellow human beings. It certainly hasn't been healthy for me. It hasn't been sustainable. And it turns out, I kind of need to be a real human being too. I shared a few episodes ago that my mother passed away in mid-2020. And it turns out that 2020 wasn't quite done with me. Women Rabbis Talk episodes took an unexpected hiatus this season because I was hit with a double whammy in December of both a serious head injury and my second case of COVID. As of this recording, I'm pretty much done with the COVID symptoms eight weeks later, but have a few months of healing still from the concussion. Though I stopped forcing myself to maintain my poker face attitude a number of years ago, that tendency was still a small voice in my head. This year forced me to quiet it once and for all, I hope. My doctor required me to take a full month off of work due to the concussion, which happened before the COVID diagnosis. 
I'm blessed with a congregation filled with kind, compassionate, patient, and generous souls who are actually really encouraging me to heal and take my time and take breaks that facilitate my overall health. Of course, opening up appropriate parts of my life brings vulnerability and risk, but I continue to learn to trust, to learn that I can be true to my own experiences and still be strong, that being a rabbinic role model means showing how to live all of myself authentically at all times, how to be made in God's image even at the difficult times, how to live various parts of the life cycle which uplift you as well as the ones which demolish you, how to be on the Mishaberach list for healing, and then how to, God willing, bench Gomel once you've healed. So may we all continue to strive to hear the voice inside of ourselves which calls us to be our true selves at all times, which wants us to share that beautiful divinity with others and to enjoy the process as we grow and evolve every single step of the way. Amen. Amen, Marcy. And I can't help it. <laughs> I have to do this. Ma 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 poker face, ma pa poker face. Ma 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 poker face, ma pa poker face. So what about you, Emma? What are you thinking about? Well, Marcy, I don't have a green thumb. Whatever the opposite of a green thumb is, that's what I have. I'm an indoor plant assassin. Before I moved to Cape Town, the only plant I had ever kept alive successfully was an aloe that I kept in my dorm room in university. I also once successfully planted a rose bush, so I guess that counts for something. In Cape Town's Mediterranean climate, there's an abundance of plants that basically grow successfully without any interference, and it's changed my whole relationship with plants. I now have a much beloved succulent garden on my front porch, and my backyard has been thoroughly taken over by the most incredible passion fruit vine. This thing is an absolute monster. I planted it last December, and in just over a year, it has completely taken over the entire garden wall, and I had to build a wooden frame between the house and garden walls for it to climb on. But other than providing it with ample space to spread, I've had to do basically nothing other than trim it back when it threatens to co-opt my laundry line. Several months ago, it started blooming, the most unusual white and purple blossoms, and then it began to fruit. And it's amazing. My whole garden is filled with these grenadilla fruit now. That's what passion fruit is called here, grenadilla. They hang down from the vine, and even harvesting them takes no effort because you basically just wait for them to fall off. Every day I come out to find these little purple gifts waiting for me on the grass. And each one of them feels like a miracle to this Canadian girl who finds herself in her own tropic garden somehow down at the bottom of Africa. This past year, so much has been hard. So much has taken an unimaginable amount of effort. Just staying home takes effort. Doing nothing takes effort. 
Not hugging people takes effort. Not making plans beyond tomorrow takes effort. So this one thing, this incredible vine that just grew without any help, that gives me fruit without any help, all I did was plant it and tell it daily, especially once it started taking over the garden, how incredible it is. The mere fact of this plant that thrives all on its own in this year of all years where it feels like everything is vulnerable and contagious and sick and fearsome, this green vine that pulsates with life and gives life and beauty and fruit without asking anything in return, it just feels truly unbelievable. I rave about my grenadilla to my friends and family daily. And today, my first basket of ripe fruit finally filled up. My friend Jill told me that once I had 10 fruit, we could make cordial. And so today we did. I brought the basket to her home, the only home other than my own that I go into these days. And we sliced them open and scooped out the goopy sweet seeds and boiled them in sugar water. And I brought home a bottle of passion fruit cordial and I poured myself a glass of sparkling water and ice and put some in and it was the best thing I've ever tasted because I planted something. And a year later, a hard year later, but not hard in relation to what I planted, that thing that I planted gave me fruit, and that fruit, because I watched it grow from a tiny vine to a bowl full of round purple miracles, is the best tasting fruit there could ever be. So many things were awful about 2020, but there were also some pretty incredible and beautiful things that happened along the way. I struggled, we all struggled, we're still struggling, but the world keeps spinning and plants keep growing and sometimes the simplest of things can also be the most profound. When I got home today with my bottle of cordial, my empty grenadilla basket contained one new piece of fruit that my housekeeper had picked up while hanging out the wash. I will keep gathering these daily gifts until that basket is full again. And then I'll make something else that tastes like a miracle, and I will give thanks for every moment of this life that is touched by beauty and hope rather than fear and loss. Can you hear that song? Amen. Amen. We are so excited and honored to welcome today's guest, Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt, who was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary and is celebrated by the Forward as one of the 32 most inspiring rabbis in the country. Recently, she was named one of the Jewish Women's International's JWI's Women to Watch and is a proud senior fellow of the coveted Schusterman Fellowship, a leadership development program for individuals who are committed to growing their leadership in the Jewish community. Rabbi Holtzblatt also gratefully serves on the National Board of Avodah and on the Joint Steering Committee of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, the USCJ. 
Among Rabbi Holtzblatt's many achievement at Adas Israel, where she is the co-senior rabbi, she has completely revitalized their caretaking, their chesed committee, and their bereavement efforts, co-created the acclaimed Makom DC adult learning curriculum, launched and leads their wildly successful, quote, return again, end quote, worship services, and directs the Jewish Mindfulness Center of Washington, which has twice been recognized as one of America's top innovative Jewish projects by the annual Slingshot Guide for Jewish Innovation. Previously, Rabbi Holtzblatt served as the Hillel Foundation Director of Campus Initiatives and as the Associate Rabbi at the Yale University Hillel here in Connecticut. Rabbi Holtzblatt was also a rabbinic fellow at B'nai Jeshurun in New York. She's married to Ari Holtzblatt and their two children, Noah and Elijah, attend the Milton Gottsman Jewish Day School of the nation's capital. So Rabbi Holtzblatt, we are just so delighted that you are with us today. What would you like us to call you and why throughout our episode and what are your pronouns? So first of all, thank you both for having me. It's my honor to be here. I would love you to call me Lauren because I feel like what we're doing here is just, we're having a, a conversation among rabbis. And so I'd love that. And my pronouns are she, her. Thank you, Lauren. It's just so great to have you. So share with us a little bit about how and why you decided to become a rabbi. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about some of the positions you have served in throughout your career? Well, I did not grow up in an observant Jewish home. My parents, I should say their, their spirituality was social justice, which is definitely a strong spirituality that I've taken with me throughout my life. But I didn't go to religious school or day school or anything like that. We were not members of a synagogue. And so it's a little far-fetched that I became a rabbi. But really what happened was I always had a very strong spiritual core. I've always felt that there's something in the universe beyond us. And for me, that's God. I think for others, that can be other things. In my search to really find myself as a Jew really came in college. I went to Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, the Hebrew Bible was, you take sort of core curriculum. And that was one of the classes I took. And it was reading the Tanakh from beginning to end. And I completely fell in love with it. You know, I am not having grown up with a strong Jewish education. I didn't really know the characters of Moses or Abraham or, you know, our Deborah or some of the like incredible women that are in the Tanakh. Once I started to read text, I never put it down. After four years of college and a year at Hebrew University, and then another year in Israel at the Pardes Institute, which is a co-ed yeshiva in Jerusalem. I still wasn't ready to commit to being a rabbi. Came back to New York, did another year at Drisha, which is a women's yeshiva on the Upper West Side. And then I decided it was time. I wanted to give myself five years of just delving into these texts and learning them. And it was really only in rabbinical school that I realized I really wanted to be a rabbi. All of the kind of internships that we have from chaplaincy at NYU hospital to fighting for justice with the labor movement to different experiences of trying on rabbi really made me fall in love with this, with this life path. Wow. And that is a big thing. The, the first, I don't know, 50 times somebody calls you rabbi at least. And you're like, wait, are you talking to, 
to me what huh you know (laughs) seeing your name rabbi you know before it you know I would say even before rabbinical school I think one of the most and I'm sure I'm I'm curious to hear if if you guys have have done chaplaincy but for me that was one of the most important roles that I felt like I was in ever. And that was actually my first summer of rabbinical school. I did a four-month chaplaincy at NYU Hospital. Just being with people at the brink of their lives, you know, facing incredibly difficult moments, either cancer or epilepsy, the, the myriad things that I saw in the hospital and having other Uh, student chaplains to be able to talk through what we were theologically feeling, what we were emotionally feeling, all the transference that happens, which is really like watching your own. I'm seeing you both shake your heads and I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that was a role that I felt like has never left me. Those four months have just been there. They're they're solidified in my memory in a deep way. And then, you know, as a rabbi, I began at B'nai Jeshurun, which is a synagogue on the Upper West Side. My Rebbe's there, Rabbi Felicia Saul, uh, Roli Matalan, and Marcella Brunstein, um, just still my rabbis. uh, And watching masters do what they did, which was really bringing the depths of their own Torah, how they saw the world, being with people at their lowest points, and music, which I can already hear is important to both of you, bringing music as a part of the liturgical experience and helping people to find highs and lows within prayer, which I think for so many years, for many people, prayer has felt so inaccessible, either because they're not familiar with the liturgy or because walking into a synagogue is difficult or some of the metaphors don't work for people. So BJ was just really, really important to me and sort of trying to figure out what kind of rabbi I wanted to be in the world. The melodies of BJ are floating through my head. So yeah, I know, please. I'm like remembering my <laughs> moments there as a rabbinical student. I mean, so I actually, I joined there as I was a member there throughout rabbinical school because JTS, although it was definitely the right place for me observance-wise and text-wise, which was really what I wanted out of JTS, spirituality there, um, I found it was hard. I mean, it's, it's a very academic institution. And so BJ became a spiritual home for me. And so it really kind of like flowed from rabbinical school into that internship. And I have to say, this is what most BJ fellows will say, that when I left BJ, you feel like you're going into Galut, like you really are in exile because I left New York. I'm a New Yorker and leaving New York was really hard. And my husband, I got married my fifth year of rabbinical school. Um, My husband, Ari, decided that he wanted to go to law school. He had been working for the labor movement, which was where we met. He got into Yale and I basically said, if you get into Yale, you go. So we're leaving New York. With the help of BJ in helping to kind of secure some funds and pushing the Yale Hillel to hire me really strongly because there wasn't a position, I created a position for a three-year job as a conservative rabbi at Yale Hillel. And I loved, I loved it. I mean, it just working with students who are in that awesome angsty period of right? They're leaving home. And so they're so vulnerable. And at the same time, they feel so passionate about the world and they want to fix everything. I loved it. I mean, I just, I love being there. I love being on campus. Yale has so much to offer. I audited a ton of classes, which was great to still be a student. I loved the library, just walking in the stacks, you know, 
at the end of three years when Ari was done with law school, I was like, I'm done. I, I want to leave. We were, it was really hard to, for us to build community there because it's a very transient city. Even though I love college students, we were eating Shabbat dinner with them every Friday night and I was ready to have some peers. <laughs> so um, we moved to DC. I worked for one year for the International Center at Hillel, and I worked on a program on civil dialogue, creating civil dialogue groups on campus, which now feels like eons ago when we think about what our country is going through right now. I really missed being in community. You know, I was working, creating curriculum that I would never teach. And for me, that felt like it was so painful. And so... A very good friend of mine, Rabbi Shira Stutman, who is the rabbi at Six and I for the moment, she's leaving, but she was at, she's still there for now. And she connected me with Rabbi Gil Steinloff, who was at Addis Israel. And there was a job for, it was a part-time job to run their lifelong learning. And I took it. I had one child who was three and a half. And I had another child who was brand new. My son had just been born. My husband had luckily enough landed a job that I had a little bit of flexibility that I didn't have before. And so a part-time role, I was like, let me get in the pulpit. I, I don't care how I get in. I just want in. And I've never left. I, I've been at Addis uh, for 10 years and have had different roles there as first lifelong learning, director of lifelong learning, and then as associate rabbi and then four years ago in this transition to senior there. And it has just been really the gift of a lifetime to be able to work with this community. That's such a beautiful journey to sort of grow in one community in different roles. There are not that many female senior rabbis yet in the world. So can you tell us a little bit about how that's been for you? Any highs and lows or particular things that have stood out to you in that role? I, I was very nervous about this. I really enjoyed working with the previous senior rabbi at Addis, Gil Steinloff. And when he told me and the other associate, Rabbi Aaron Alexander, that he was leaving, Aaron and I were very close. And I said, I'm not going to work for another senior. Like I, this is, I love Gil and I've loved this time we've had together. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm ready, but I don't want to do it alone. And there was no guarantee they were going to hire us. I mean, so the two of us were like, why don't we do it together? You know, one of the other things that I was really worried about was that since I had been started my career part time there at Addis, um, I actually wasn't full time until I got the seniorship, which is crazy. But being home with my kids was really important to me, picking them up from school, not being on every Shabbat so that I could be with them and that I could sort of protect them from being in a fishbowl. So doing this in partnership was one of the things that I felt like was most important um, to be able to have someone else to share the journey with in the workplace and to have someone who was really supporting me at home, my husband, Ari. Um, and I, I would say, you know, one of the things that the community wasn't immediately excited about having even though they they were fond of Aaron and I, they were not, they didn't necessarily really love the idea of having two rabbis at the helm. So it took a lot of convincing. We wrote a proposal, figured out how to split the portfolio, reminded them that this was not going to be two part-time rabbis, but two full-time rabbis. So they would get more than their money's worth. But in terms of thinking about doing this as a woman, you know, I really, all the things, I mean, Aaron has a long beard and he's really tall. 
And he happens, he was the dean at the Ziegler School for 10 years, which is a rabbinical school in LA. And so, you know, his specialty is Talmud. So it just, there's a very male package. <laughs> and so when we looked at our offices, this is just sort of a metaphor for, for what was, but we looked at the offices and there's a very big senior office with a bathroom. And then there was a very small associate uh, office that I had been inhabiting. And then there was another associate office, which he was in. We kind of looked at each other and we're like, who's going to get the office? First, we thought about sharing it. We were like, when we have big meetings, we'll go into it. But that wasn't going to work because we were going to hire a third rabbi. And he looked at me and he was like, you should get the big office. And I said, why? And he said, because I have the beard. And it was this understanding that likely, you know, there was going to be an uphill battle for the kind of power wielding that is necessary in a, in a role like that. And certainly when we were not only meeting with people inside the congregation, but outside the congregation, that there was a gravitas of that office that would help sort of solidifying what that role really meant. And I feel like, you know, I think viewing this with someone who is a feminist, it really wants to be in full partnership has made all the difference in the world. I'm, I'm curious, I've recently been having conversations with my own uh, clergy team where I'm one of three full-time rabbis and we're all, uh, we don't have a hierarchy, so we're all just rabbi, but I'm the only woman and the first full-time woman in the community. And we've been having a lot of conversations lately around how we allocate life cycle. Um, I'm curious if that's been, if that's come up between you and Aaron and how you've resolved it. Uh, Wait, yeah. can, you, are, can you say more about, I mean, I know you're interviewing me, but can you say more about that? <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're all just chatting. Yeah, no, so I noticed, I posted about this actually in, the, in our Women's Rabbinic Network uh, Facebook group that I had noticed, and I think it's okay to, to share this publicly, that, that there are lots of times where I experience that people come to me with questions about how we do life cycle in our community, what do things cost, who do I ask? Who do I contact? How do I schedule it? And I would answer all the questions and then they would go and schedule it with one of the other rabbis. And it wasn't a, always like a matter of personal preference or personality because it was happening with people who I had good relationships with and I wasn't in doubt of the relationship. Um, and it made me wonder if there were sort of some underlying sort of still, I mean, especially because here in Cape Town, women rabbis are new. Um, and so there are lots of people who've never been to a, a wedding where the where the rabbi under the chuppah has been a woman. You know, just kind of, so we're sort of wondering about if if there are still some, some sort of unnamed, unrecognized bias that, that people are still sort of, when they're imagining who they want under their chuppah, you know, that that it's, they're still picturing a, a male rabbi because they've never seen a woman rabbi under the chuppah. Um, and so it just doesn't, occur to them that maybe that that's even a possibility. So that's sort of a new thing that we're working through and we're trying to, part of the way that we're trying to work through it is to think about how we allocate life cycle. Is it, you know, is it by request that people just request the rabbi that they want um, at their life cycle or are there ways that we can administrate it more equitably? Um, I love, I mean, that, first of all, I love that you're having that conversation and I love that your team, sounds like your team is very supportive and I love that feels to me so important because I think, and I, I promise you I'll answer, but I think so much of what we're doing as 
pioneers. I mean, we are not the first ones, but we're certainly not so far away from the first women rabbis. And so that idea that this is a journey and we haven't figured it all out and that we have allies and partners, I think is so, so important. I will say with us, I think one of the things that has taken place is that I'm, I am like the, the, you know, the nurturer, you know, I happen to wear my heart on my sleeve. It happens to be who I am. And I love talking about emotions and where we are in our journeys. And Aaron tends to be, while he's wonderful at emotional conversations, he much more loves, you know, the intellectual, the thinking through things, the, you know, the, the, he used to joke that in his Ziegler office, he didn't have tissues, you know, they, he wouldn't allow them in his office. When I, he got here, I was like that, you're not allowed to do that. Put the tissues in there. He has been wonderful about kind of opening up. But I do think that when typically, like when people, and it's not everyone, there's certainly tons of people who will go to him. But I think when there is a big emotional issue, it tends to come to me, whether that's around grief or divorce or issues at home or things like that. Um, and thank God we also have an, a wonderful assistant rabbi, Sarah Krinsky, who also offers herself in so many incredible ways. But between the two of us, I do tend to get all the kind of emotional stuff. So even though the, the life cycles are definitely split, um, by the way, I definitely also get many more funerals. I don't know why. I'm not under the chuppah that much. Like, I'm just not, which is sad. Um, and he tends to get a lot of halachic questions. So is this knife kosher? Like, you know, individual. I mean, a communal questions about Jewish law we do together. That is one of the things that we decide together. But definitely individual questions mostly all go to him. And I think that's just the way, to me, it feels like that's part, part of it is because he is a master at Jewish law. That is one of the things that he is really good at. But I also think there's a gender thing of coming to, you know, the beard to get the, the legal and going to the female to get the emotional. And Part of it I embrace because I feel like, okay, that's my gift that I feel like I've, I've got this down. And part of it is also can be frustrating because I feel like, well, there are, I can also answer Jewish law questions. some pretty major exposure however I mean again this wasn't a chuppah this was a funeral but it was probably the most famous funeral of 2020 you officiated for RBG's funeral I wondered if you would be willing to tell us a little bit about that experience of course yeah so it's not lost on me this the last question that we just did and the fact that the forward named me uh, the notorious eulogizer <laughs> Which was hilarious. And at the same time, I was like, here I am, like, I'm going to go down. It's like someone you want to do your funeral, which I don't know if that's how I want to be remembered. But um, so it was the honor of a lifetime. I met Justice Ginsburg in 2014 when my husband, who's a lawyer, clerked for her. And um, she did not have a rabbi in her life that was someone who she could talk to about Jewish issues. And I was lucky enough to be in close proximity to her. And she reached out to me a few times and to talk about 
certain Jewish issues and we solidified a relationship and it was wonderful. We wrote a piece together for the American Jewish World Service on the women of the Passover story. And it's funny because when she asked me to work on that with her, I saw myself as a Jewish clerk. That's sort of like what I, that's how I imagined it. And so, you know, I talked to her about the piece and I helped her research it and I helped her write it. And, and she said to me, I'd like to put you in the byline when it was time to publish it. Is that okay? <laughs> I was like, is it okay? <laughs> yes, just thank um, you. Yes, please. <laughs> like a, this is unbelievable. I thought I was just a clerk. Yeah. Um, and over the next, you know, six years, we really, it was, I would probably hear from her every three or four months, um, either with, it was something, you know, to do with, you know, a, a philanthropic organization that she wanted to know about, about certain things that were happening in the larger family life. We just kept that relationship going. And then I saw her also at, you know, different clerk events. So it was interesting. It was both having the rabbinic relationship with her and then also the clerk relationship through my husband, because there are uh, reunions that they have every few years. And so we went to her portrait unveiling at the, at the court or the Christmas party that happens at the court and things like that. And so, and she would come to Addis once a year for Yom Kippur with her, her granddaughter, Clara, uh, who's awesome in her own right. I will tell you that I, I assumed I would be doing the funeral eventually. It was not something she and I spoke about. And I knew she was ill uh, the last sort of six months of her life. I didn't know because it really was almost like a state secret how ill she was. In the last two months of her life, she really was hanging on to try to get to November. Basically, I found out that she died when the world found out. It was Erev Rosh Hashanah. We were in our sanctuary, only, right, like seven of us were there, 10 of us were there, separated, right, by 50 feet and masks and the whole deal with our cameras on leading high holiday services. Our assistant rabbi was giving her sermon. Someone on our staff came to tell me that um, the justice had just died. Like all of you, shock, just total devastation, also because of where America has been and what I knew was going to happen with that seat, all of it. And so I went home, cried with my family, reminisced. I don't use my phone on Shabbat, but I said to my husband, I feel like I should take my phone with me just in case. And he kind of looked at me like, if you haven't heard by now, it's, you're definitely not doing the funeral. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. I just feel like I should take it. And I took the phone with me. I put it in like a little canvas bag, you know, and put it on my seat. We were supposed to go live at 9 a.m. And at two minutes to nine, I looked at my phone. It was ringing and it was the court calling. Wow. And I was like, this is it. So I said to Aaron, like, you're on. He took the broadcast live and I took the phone call. And it was her assistant, Kim, who is an incredible human being. And Kim said, Justice had asked that you do the funeral. There will be an official proceeding at the court, and then there will be something at the Capitol later in the week, but I don't know anything about it because it's being run by the Capitol, and so they'll be in touch with you about that. And so, you know, she said, would you be willing? And I said, you know, as I said to you, it would be the honor of my life to serve the justice in this way. And from there, you know, I, I had to figure out what in the world to do. Do you want me to keep going? Yes, this is amazing. We're on the edge of our seats, and I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are too. So just keep going. Okay. Um, so basically, I had I had to get through Rosh Hashanah, and you know, we we 
you know, and I was not allowed to share with anybody what was happening. And so I, of course, told my husband, I told Aaron and, you know, I sort of was like, I didn't even know what it was going to be. Um, and so basically Kim said, well, I'll be in back in touch after the holiday. And so I knew the funeral wasn't happening right away. Um, and on Sunday night, I spoke to the court and they said, you know, the proceeding would be the following Wednesday. And I had seven minutes and I said, I, I asked, did the justice leave directions for exactly what she wanted me to do? And they said, no, this is your role. And I, and they gave me actually uh, recordings of Justice Stevens's funeral and Justice Scalia's funeral. And I watched those, but they weren't Jewish. And so the rituals really, there was not like a comparable for me. That Monday after Rosh Hashanah, I went down to the Supreme Court, uh, masked and socially distant, was really careful, but I walked the space where the funeral would take place. And then I went up to her chambers and I sat with her staff and we cried together. And then I asked to sit in her chambers and I went and sat on that couch, which I had sat on many times before. It basically like just honestly tried to like connect with her universe and her soul, which I firmly believe never dies. It was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what is this moment calling for? What do you, what do you want? You know, and I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that I was like speaking to the dead. That's not what I'm saying. But I, what I am saying is that I do think in those moments when someone has just died and their soul is transitioning that there's a richness of energy that I think if we're open to, we can connect with. And then I spoke to her assistant and I said, you know, Kim, what should I do? And she said, you do you. And so I went home and I was like, Hebrew needs to be heard in the great hall. It's never been heard in that hall before. Um, I had, I had looked it up. Uh, I'd asked the archivist for some historical facts about uh, former Supreme Court justices that had died who were Jewish, but none of them had had services in the court. And so there was no precedent. I had heard carols during Christmas being sung there. I'd seen the big tree that gets put up every year in the Great Hall. And I thought, this is the moment. Like she was a Jewish justice and her Judaism was deeply important to her. I'm going to sing El Male and I'm going to, which we, for those of listeners who don't know, that is something we sing at, at um, someone's funeral and Psalm 23, which I felt both bridged the sort of Judeo-Christian exactly worlds because it's a Psalm that is so well known and also singing it in Hebrew, which felt really important. And then I thought I, I need to give a eulogy. And when I wrote what I wrote, I felt that I needed to both speak about the justice and I also wanted to speak to America because I knew that people were in dire straits, felt like the last huge blow of 2020, you know, this year that has been so unprecedented in so many ways in the last four years that have been so difficult that I felt like I needed to speak to this country and to remind this country that we, she has a legacy that we need to fill, which is that of justice and hope. You were magnificent. I mean, I, I mean, we were all in tears watching you and I hope you don't mind hearing that and I'm sure I'm sure you've heard it from people but to to hear your your voice and to see what it represented in terms of Hebrew in that space honoring such an incredibly important woman whose legacy meant so much to so many people you know of any gender but especially girls young girls you know and 
um, Jewish girls. And your your words of hope, Lauren, were were so important. You know, I get chills just remembering them. Um, mm. You know, just um, you you were the right person at the right time too. Mm. I didn't get to watch it live because of the time difference in South Africa, but right. in the um, the most Jewish of ways, I got a call from my mother who told me about how she watched it and cried and did I know you and you seemed really awesome and I should get to know you if I didn't know you yet. <laughs> it was great. It was a very Jewish moment. Totally. That's a, like, totally appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us and with our listeners. I think so many people felt close to her who didn't know her at all. Um, and to hear about it from someone who, you know, got to sit on that couch is like pretty incredible. And, uh, and also I just, I'm, I was, as I was listening to you tell the story, I was sort of thinking about how hard Rosh Hashanah was for all of us already and just how much we were all going through and carrying in this like ridiculous, what do high holidays look like online? Like, okay, here we go. Press play. Exactly. <laughs> see how this goes. And, and you get that, you know, that, that message in the middle of, of Air Rosh Hashanah and, and the phone call in the morning. And that's incredible. And yeah, my heart just goes out to you. I can't imagine how that must have felt on top of everything else. I know I heard the news on Rosh Hashanah morning here before the services started. Like I woke up and it was one of the first things I saw. And I just remember, you know, sobbing, you know, that it just sort of felt like 2020 was just taking everything from us and That's exactly. and uh and yeah and I just I can't even imagine how it was for people who actually knew her based on how strongly all of us who didn't know her but just I mean the crazy part was like you know I also had not written my Yom Kippur sermon because mm. I often I don't know what your practices are I often I'll I'll read a ton during the summer right you're both shaking your head because yeah. I know we all do that right we read 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 and then I'll land on like, you know, I, I work, you know, fervently on Rosh Hashanah, but I've found that sometimes in the world, things happen between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so I often will have a subject, but I won't have like tweaked it and it's not really done. One of the things I was thinking about was when I got the call was I had no idea when the funeral would be. And so I thought like, well, what if it happens in the days in between, which it did. And I thought, how am I going to? How am I going to do this? And then knowing there was also something at the Capitol, which I didn't know what that was going to be either. You know, it was like this crazy moment of like, well, I just have to use, I don't think I slept for seven days. Cause I was, first of all, the adrenaline was just crazy. The writing had to happen. It was like, got to focus. You got to honor her in the way that she needs to be honored. Um, and sort of midweek after I gave, after I, I did the ceremony at the Supreme Court, the Speaker Pelosi's office called and said, we, we want you to just do your thing. Do something similar at the Capitol as you did at the court. And I thought, okay, well now everything I didn't use in my eulogy at the court will have to go into the Capitol. And, and the same kind of thing of like, what do you say? It's different bodies, right? To a legislative body as opposed to you know, the justices, which is, you know, in some ways a, a different message about what we need to do to honor her legacy. Wow. Amazing. And 
And since then, the world has changed again. And for a lot of us and sort of the circles we're in, it's looking better. I know there are a lot of people in the world who who don't share that sentiment. I'd love to hear briefly how things are feeling in D.C. right now, and then we'll move on to our next segment. Yeah. How's how's D.C. feeling? It's so interesting. It's just been, it, every day has felt like a year. You know, it has felt, I will say that after the the insurrection at the Capitol, we, none of us thought that that was ever something we would see. I mean, we, we are all very aware that America feels enormously divided. Um, and that's a reality that I think we're going to have to deal with over the next four years. Seeing those images of that place that is the people's house being destroyed like that and having a confederate flag flown in the rotunda i mean it just it was devastating and scary and then having twenty thousand national guard troops thank god they're here but having them here and the streets basically shut down i mean dc became in some ways a ghost town because people were staying home. I mean, we've been staying home anyway, obviously because of the virus, but there was something different. I mean, there was an eerie quiet that was here. Kids who are 12 and nine, very aware. And sometimes I think too aware because there's a feeling, you know, it's too much anxiety for a kid to deal with. I mean, adults, right? For us, there was a lot of anxiety. You know, and I think there was real nervousness around, first of all, devastation that none of us could go to the inauguration because all the schools closed for inauguration in D.C. It's a huge day here. You know, being part of history and standing amongst the crowd, which obviously we we were not going to be able to do this year in the same way, in a socially distant way, could see the Capitol and watch the first, you know, Madam Vice President take her role. And exactly, Vice President Harris is just unbelievable. And President Biden, and there was real sadness over that. And then also just a real nervousness of what would happen. Um, Our schools closed for most of that week. Um, All the schools here were very nervous about the violence that might ensue. And I will say that 1201 on Wednesday was a huge sigh of relief when um, Biden and Harris officially took ownership of that office for the next four years and that there was no public violence that had happened. And so things are, you know, I think people have an anxious ease here. There's a, an excitement about what's to come. There's an excitement about a shift, but I think there's also anxiety. Um, these troops we've been told are going to be here through mid-March. And there's, I think there's still real anxiety over a lot of the hate that we certainly know well as Jews that is still here um, lingering. Yeah. It's it's the end, but it's not the end. It's the beginning. Who knows? It's, wow. Sounds intense. I mean, it's intense to watch it from the bottom of Africa, so I can only imagine what it feels like in D.C. You look so warm, I just want to say. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it, is, it, is very, it is very hot here right now. <laughs> I'm a little jealous of the snow, so which I never say, actually. I don't usually miss the snow, but it's hot today. We're going to jump to our questionnaire Mahair segment and have a little fun with you before we let you go. All right. So we're going to just jump right into this. And it's kind of meant to be rapid fire, first thing that comes to your mind kind of thing. Who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? Rabbi Donna Berman, who is a reform rabbi, and she was at the Port Jewish Center when I was growing up, and I loved her. 
Tell us about a woman that inspires you, Jewish or otherwise. So at the moment, I would say Stacey Abrams. I feel like she she's just a master organizer. She took defeat and decided how to reorganize and to bring, you know, the, the power of voting to so many people in Georgia. And I'm just totally inspired by her. Mm. Yeah. How did she do that? She's amazing. Unbelievable. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is or women rabbis are? Super, like they're super women. I feel like we have this ability to multitask and to make that a superpower rather than a distraction. Um, I think we bring something very new to the world and the rabbinate that was not here before. What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? It's a great question. Okay, I have to be quick. Honestly, I think how strong we are. I don't think people really are aware of how much we hold from whatever's happening in our home life to breaking new barriers all the time for centuries old religion that was, you know, primarily male dominated for most of its existence um, and how much it takes to really be innovative, to push through boundaries and to actually believe in yourself because the world is not always telling you that that is your role. That's such a great answer. And I'm, I just like quickly want to reflect on how strength looks different in different people and in different generations. And that there, I can sort of thinking of a whole generation of women rabbis who, who, for, who channeled strength into being masculine and, and how strength looks different for a lot of our generation of rabbis. And it's such a, it's such an important answer. So I just wanted to. I love that you're adding that. Thank you. Oh, yeah. And where are we? Favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? I mean, okay, she's Gal Gadot. I love her. I love Wonder Woman. She's awesome. I love her. She did this thing on Bituim, you know, like Hebrew expressions that my son watched in his Jewish day school. And I just, I love her. So I would say her. And then I would, I think I need to also add the Banot Slokhad, so the five sisters in um, Parshat Pinchas who fight against injustice to say that they should also be able to inherit their father's land, even though they don't ha- he didn't have any male inheritors. They're like the original ceiling breakers. Totally. Connected to that, a Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life. So one of the things I talked about earlier in this podcast was chaplaincy. And so being with people and being a witness for people, I think is part of what my rabbinate has become, something that's really important to me. And so there's a story in Brachot about rabbis coming together when one of them is sick. And instead of trying to heal each other, one says to to the other, you know, is your suffering near or dear to you? And the rabbi says, no. And the other rabbi says, give me your hand. Mm -hmm. And in that way, he raised him up. And that whole idea that we, as rabbis, are not we're not necessarily healers. I mean, we can sometimes help in that manner, but I think we're there really as witnesses. And I think witnessing other people's pain and joy can have an enormous impact on helping them find their own strength that they had all along, but they didn't know was there. Mm, So beautiful. I'm also going to take a second to say, because you were talking about chaplaincy earlier and I didn't want to interrupt, but the importance of chaplaincy, I was talking to my really good friend the other day who 
when I met her, she was the interfaith chaplain in the small town where I started my rabbinate in Plattsburgh, New York. She's now she's a pastor of her own church, um, actually close to you. She's in Maryland. And I was saying to her, I'm so relieved that you're not a chaplain, a hospital chaplain right now. It must be such an incredibly difficult time for people who are hospital chaplains. And I just want to send collectively our three, all of our love out to anyone who's out there ministering in the hospitals such a tough fear and we appreciate you finally lauren thank you again what are you thinking about these days that's a great question look i'm thinking about the world's reopening i'm thinking of so first of all i'm holding the grief figuring out what we do with that grief how we work our way through it as we god willing open up at some point obviously not incredibly soon, but our vaccines are, they're coming in, they're going in arms, and really what it's going to look like to open up again. Um, Because if we go back to the way things were, I think we will have failed this time. Uh, This time I really feel like has made us so aware of how much we need each other, how much we need to be living purposeful, mindful lives. I feel like for me, my life was moving at 120 miles an hour, and I don't want to return to that. And wanting to create spaces that really honor the web of community and humanity, and at the same time, God willing, slow down, not move as fast, create more equitable and accessible ways of people connecting to their Jewish life. Those are the kinds of conversations that I really want to be a part of and make sure that are happening both at Addis and also in the larger world. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt, thank you for this precious opportunity to just be in your presence and to learn from you and with you and just see what a beautiful soul you are. And your community is so lucky to have a chance to just feel your heart and your soul, which you said you wear on your sleeve. And that is a gift. It's it's nice to really get to be with you and to meet you in this way. And I hope it's not at all the last time because you are just lovely and wonderful. Uh, and we are so grateful for this chance to, to be with you. So if our listeners want to follow up with you or connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Via email. Um, my email is on the Addis website. Um, they should feel free to reach out in that way. I'm sort of obsessed with email probably like you both, you know, I'm on it all the time. So it's a great way to reach out. So the Addis Israel website is www.addisisrael.org. And I also just want to thank both of you so much for this opportunity. It was so great to be able to speak with you and to reflect on, on some of these things. Thank you. And I want to say that I bet that your weddings are as good as your funerals. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Call Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt for your wedding. For your wedding. <laughs> Don't wait till your funeral. Be you. your wedding. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for being with us. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash women rabbis talk and on instagram at women rabbis podcast or by sending us an email to women rabbis podcast that's women rabbis podcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm 
m slash women rabbis podcast we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to submit your ask the rabbi questions thanks so much to seth lindenman and to john claude haynes from c robin tech for their help with sound tech setup our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available more or less wherever you find other awesome podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And we edit this ourselves. So a big thanks to you, Emma. And thanks to you, Marcy. And with that, we are out. Amazing.